We began by looking at uh, salvation by grace, the message of, of grace as being the, the foundation stone of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then uh, the authority of the Bible, the authority of the Word of God. You know, some groups believe tradition is the authority, how we've done things and always viewed them. Some people believe that the church has the exclusive authority that is the church leaders to interpret the Bible. And people need to obey that interpretation. Uh, Actually, that's very much like the cults. By the way, did you know the difference between the technical definition of a cult versus occult or other religions? Occult always has to do with evil supernaturalism things that are hidden, that's what the word occult means, right? Occult injury is one you can't see till you find it by testing. And so the occult has to do with things hidden. Other religions are just that. There are other religions, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, Jainism, whatever ism you want to name. But the definition of a cult is a group that uses the Bible as its foundation or as its beginning point, but then gives a superimposed interpretation of what it means, the official party line. They have special revelation. They have special insight. And so the way they interpret the Bible is the authoritative rule such as Jehovah's Witnesses, such as Mormons, such as Christian Science, such as the Catholic Church. All of these groups claim to have the exclusive authority to interpret the Bible. As evangelical believers, we believe that the Bible stands on its own. Grammatically, historically interpreted in light of history and the structure of the language, The Bible means what it says, says what it means, and speaks to us, and we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, the very author of Scripture, who gives us the uh, capacity to read the Bible with understanding. And so, we've been looking at the authority of the Bible, and then, of course, one has to raise the question, as we've done so in the last uh, two messages, what do we do when the Bible is in conflict with science? What do we do when the Bible is in conflict with culture? And now today, what do we do when the Bible is in conflict with legitimate authority? And I underscore the word legitimate because there's a lot of people and groups out there that claim authority, but there are only certain ones that are legitimate authority. But what happens when the Bible and what we believe as Christians is in conflict with legitimate authority? That's what we want to look at this morning. Now, I'm preaching topically, so we're going to be all over the Bible to give the answer to that question, but there is a foundational verse that is kind of like the classical location of reference for all the questions dealing with authority. It's found in Romans chapter 13, in verse 1, where it says, Let every person be be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. There's your classical passage in the Scripture. If you want to know what the Bible says in summary on the subject of authority, the Bible says there is no authority except God. 
and all of the authorities that legitimately exist are the authorities that he himself has instituted. They are given by him in some senses for our benefit. And so as we ask the question this morning, how are we to respond when the Bible is in conflict with a legitimate authority in our lives? The very first thing that I want to underscore and this is also a foundational principle of Scripture, is that rebellion is never the will of God. Rebellion is never the will of God. I don't even want to leave yet, because <laughs> I have two more points after this. But it is very important that we begin there with that understanding. Samuel actually by divine inspiration, gives us this information in 1 Samuel 15, 23, when the scripture says, for rebellion, <coughs> he's speaking to Saul. And Saul has not exactly followed God's specific instructions, but he thinks he's done pretty well. And, and his motives are, of course, in question here. But nonetheless, uh, Samuel is challenging Saul, and he gives these immortal words, Rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft, and stubbornness is like idolatry. Now, that's the biblical summary statement on rebellion. Rebellion is like witchcraft, and stubbornness is like idolatry. What does that mean? That means whenever you are in rebellion, you are never acting more like the devil. Whenever you're in rebellion, you are acting like the devil. In fact, he's the one that says, I will ascend to the Most High God. I will be like God. I want to be in charge of stuff. I don't like what God's saying. I want to do it my way. And when you're like that, witches and wizards, the male witches, uh, have sold themselves into bondage to evil powers in order to have supernatural evil power. And Samuel says, when you're in rebellion, you're acting just like a witch who sold themselves to the devil. And when you're being stubborn, stubbornness is kind of like um, rebellion with an attitude. You know, rebels are out there in your face. <clears throat> Sometimes people are sort of passive aggressive, you know, and they're just kind of uh, hanging back. But they, they won't budge. You can't get them to move. They won't cooperate. They won't go along with the program. They won't play with the team. They want to do it their way. And Samuel says, stubbornness is like idolatry. How is it that stubbornness is like idolatry? Because stubbornness basically says, I want to do it my way. I want to do it my way. I want to have my idea. I want to push my agenda. I don't like yours. I'm not playing with the team. I am going to be my own boss. I'm not, I'm not going along with the group. Okay, stubbornness, resistance to authority, legitimate authority, is like idolatry. I'm my own God. And that's the essence of the fundamental temptation in the Garden of Eden. For in the day that you eat of it, He knows that your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can make your own choices. You don't need God anymore. You can do your own thing. And that's exactly the problem. And so we are never more like the devil 
than when we are behaving rebelliously and stubbornly. It's very important that we get this principle down before we talk about any legitimate resistance of authority that is in conflict with Scripture. We have to understand the foundational principle that rebellion is never from God. It is never from God. A rebellious spirit, a stubborn spirit, is never from God. All authority that is in the world ultimately comes from God. He's the author of it. It's ordained by Him. And therefore, it is to be treated with the utmost respect. Now, the order of my points under uh, letter B here is there for a reason, because I think this is the way God has instituted these authorities in human, in human existence. Begins with marriage, and then it goes to parents. And then it goes to government. After Noah came off the ark, it's very clear that God made a change in the rules, so to speak. He instituted human government. He gave Noah and his descendants from that point forward the authority to enforce the law, if necessary, with lethal force. In other words, he changed the, the paradigm and he gave to Noah and his followers the right to establish human government that had not only the rule of law, but the enforcing power of law up to the death of the offender. Church authority, including pastors and elders, and then at some lesser level, uh, government, I mean corporate, business, and institutional authority. Let's talk about each of these uh, just a little bit. Some people, and this is definitely not popular in our culture today, and there's absolutely no point in me going out on the streets of McHenry and proclaiming this message because people think I came from another planet in, in our current uh, 2009 uh, mentality in, in the United States. Some people think that the authority of the husband in the marriage relationship came because of the fall of man, that because of man's fall and demise and sin, that he uh, put the woman under the man. That's a misunderstanding of the Genesis 3 passage. It's misreading that in its intent. Paul makes it clear in Corinthians that there is a certain divine order to things, a certain divine authority, and that the relationship in marriage of the husband in authority over the wife is from before the fall. It's a part of the creative sequence and order of things, just as God is the head of the man. But if you go back to Genesis before the fall of man, and you look at the relationships, it never occurred to anyone who was in charge and who was under authority because they had such a loving, pure, and holy relationship. They were so much in tune with one another. I'm talking about man and God. They were so much together. They were walking together in the cool of the day. They were enjoying intimacy. They were enjoying fellowship. They were so much together that it never occurred to anyone to, to, to describe the pecking order. They were having a wonderful time in their relationship. It's only when sin entered the picture did this delineation become apparent. And God said, you're leaving the garden. Why? Because he is the authority. 
and I'm putting an angel here to guard it. And as the marriage relationship was also affected by sin, all of this kind of blame game stuff started. When God created man and woman, he put them together, put them on the planet, and this is what he said. He said, you rule it, you have dominion over it, you have a, you together, you together are in charge of this planet, I'm giving it to you. And when Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, talks about the husband um, having authority in the marriage relationship and wives coming under that authority, husbands always love to land on that passage. And they don't so much like the part that says, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loves the church and died for it, gave himself up for it. In a godly marriage, in a godly uh, union of husband and wife, the ideal desire is that the two walk together as a team. That the two be in a team relationship. That they have the same goals, the same, the same agenda. They're after the same things in life. And the number one thing is to honor and serve and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ together. That's the number one goal. But you know what? There comes a time uh, in every relationship, no matter what it is, corporate, business, government, whatever, there comes a time when at, at, at times people are in disagreement. And when they're in disagreement and a decision has to be made and the clock is ticking and they're approaching the moment when that choice has got to be made, I think the Bible's pretty clear in saying that the burden and responsibility of that decision rest upon the husband, God will hold him accountable for the outcome. And in the process, he holds the wife in the relationship responsible to follow the husband's lead in that matter. Now, there's a, I could preach 15 sermons on this, and I'm not going to. We're on a biblical authority here this morning, but I want you to understand there are a lot of assumptions there. And part of it has to do with, in a godly marriage, the husband desires the success of the wife, wants her to realize all that God has made her to be, longs for her to have the, the goals and desires of her heart, as God <laughs> does for all of us, dies for her, sacrifices for her, is committed to her, never mistreats her, always respects her. There's that kind of relationship going on there. But if the occasion arises where the clock is ticking, the decision has to be made, and there's not a full agreement, hopefully there's been give and take and talk and discussion, and both parties are listening with active, interested, I want to know what you think. I want your input. I want to hear this. Let's make this together. Sometimes a choice has to be made. Sometimes there's not full agreement. When that moment comes, the Scripture says the husband has to make that decision and bear the responsibility for it. And the wife is obligated to support him in it. I, marriage, church, government won't work if everybody has equal say. You get stalemated periodically. 
You know, there, there's an ideal uh, people from time to time have said the, the church leadership team should operate totally by consensus. You know what consensus means on a board? It means one person can hang the whole thing up. You have a board of ten people, one person could stop the whole thing. And they may not be in the will of God. And it's, it's wonderful and it's ideal to say we ought to pray through until everybody's in agreement. We ought to, but that doesn't happen every time. Sometimes people just are out of joint. And you've got to move on or the whole organization is at a grinding halt. And there has to be some decision. And I think while consensus is a wonderful ideal when it boils down to it, every once in a while you have to stop and say, where are most of you? What's the vote? Let's make a choice. Because God has instituted authority in these relationships. Parental authority. That kind of goes without question, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. There's no, there's no get around that. I mean, that's just plain. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, he goes on to say, just like he says, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church, and most husbands want to omit that verse. You know, children, obey your parents in the Lord. He goes on to say, and fathers, fathers, do not exasperate, frustrate your children, but nurture them in the Lord. Now, you know, you you say, well, what does that mean? I wonder how many times parents, when they're bringing discipline and direction into the lives of their kids, uh, are doing so because of what they want. Instead of in the very best interest of their children and nurturing them in the Lord, sometimes we can bring frustration in the lives of children because we demand something of them that's inappropriate and only serves our own needs. If there's one word that describes parenting as a summation, it is sacrifice. It's just part of the job description. If you're not willing, you're going to have trouble. It's sacrifice. And so parental authority is kind of a without question sort of thing. When is the age when kids are emancipated? Well, there's a legal time, and then there's a practical time. And the fact of the matter is that in today's society in the United States, they're saying that the average age when a young person is emancipated from the home, that is, they're able to be financially independent and live on their own and handle their own affairs, is about 27. So those of you that have six-year-olds, you only thought you didn't have 20 more years, but you're in for a long haul because our, our economy and all other kinds of factors play into that, and that's just a part of it. I said this in the 8 o'clock service. I'll go ahead and say it in the 10 o'clock service, <coughs> even though my son's in the audience, <coughs> one of them anyway. I like having him at home. I'm in no hurry for him to leave. When the day comes and he's ready to go, that's fine with me, you know. Well, it probably won't be. I'll probably have that infamy nest syndrome too. But anyway, but I enjoy that. But I also, there's a point where he's got to make his decisions now. And 
that level comes at a certain stage as children grow up into young adults and then adults where they take on more and more responsibility. But when a child, in this case probably Paideia, the young child under the age of approximately 12, in the home, that child is under the authority of the parents. And you can't get around that. There's no way to, to come up with anything else. The government is given by God. You know, we look at that and we say, well, and Paul wrote this thing, you know. He goes on to say, for example, in chapter 13 of Romans, verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he, the Roman soldier carrying that 18-inch sword, he is God's servant for your good. But if you're doing wrong, be afraid, because he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You say, well, that's fine as long as the authority is legitimate. May I say to you that Paul wrote this of Rome? Speaking of Roman soldiers, who probably at the time of this writing was under Clement, but it wasn't too many more years then Rome was being ruled by Nero. The guy was a maniac. He was a total idiot. And he's killing Christians right and left. And still the rule is, that soldier carrying lethal force is the minister of God. And today in in our world and in our country, we have legitimate authority, the police departments, the whatever, that carry lethal force as God's servants. They don't always act like it. Many of them don't act like it at all. But they are nonetheless God's servants. And it has nothing to do with their morality or the lack of it. It has to do simply with the fact that God instituted human government and it's better to have some government than no government. Because when you have no government, you have anarchy. And when you have anarchy, no one is safe or free. And so God says, government is my idea, it's my plan, come under its authority. People really don't like the the fourth one I've listed down here, especially not in, in the evangelical church today, but there is authority in the church, including pastors and elders. This interesting passage in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Friends, there is authority in the church. The church has authority. The leadership team, the board, has authority. Pastors and elders have authority. And Paul says, if you're a part of the church, or the writer of Hebrews says, if you're a part of the church, submit to your leaders and to those who have authority, come under them in the Lord, because they have to keep watch over your souls and give an account. They have that responsibility. And you need to make sure they do this with joy and not with sadness. My district superintendent called me this week, John Rich. We were in a conversation together and we were talking about some issues regarding uh, new licensing policy that's coming out of the national office. And we were bantering back and forth and that 
that led to other topics and that led to church growth or the lack of it and that led to discussion of McHenry and that led to a bunch of other things. And after about 45 minutes of just talking back and forth and enjoying the conversation, John said this to me. It really kind of took me by surprise. He says, I really enjoy talking with you because you like me. And I thought, well, that's a curious statement to make. I kind of read between the lines and gathered that not everyone does. And I said, John, I'm on your team, man. I'm for you. Does that mean I I agree with everything that comes out of the district office? Not on your life. Of course, the last time I tried to tell him what I disagreed with, he passed out later that afternoon and has no recollection of the conversation. And we've laughed about that a lot of times, but I've never bothered to repeat it. I just figured that God just wanted that to go away. So I just, you know, but I love him. I support him. I, I'm for him. I'm on his team. I want to see him be successful and I want to give him joy in his leadership. I want him to do well. And friends in the local church, your elders, your church leadership team, your pastors, I have authority. Now, I have often been accused of not exercising enough authority. And I will say, I'll be the first one to admit, and you can ask the people that work with me and, and around me and whatever, I don't give a lot of orders. I don't tell people what to do. I don't like to do that. For one thing, I assume they're there because they are also called of God. They love what they're doing. They have initiative. They have an intrinsic desire to do the right thing. And and if I just get out of their way, they'll do what they need to do. Sometimes I don't think I give enough direction. But I do know this. I have authority over this church in the Lord. And if you push me to the wire on some issue where I'm forced to draw a line in the sand, and I am standing firmly, rightly upon biblical principle in the Word of God, and you disobey me, you're doing so at your own peril. And I'll never tell you that, probably in those terms, except here in this sermon, where I can just kind of shotgun it out to the whole group and you can just apply it. But here's the truth. I know that I can go to God and talk to Him about you. That's where the real power lies. And the authority comes from God. And I have no desire to lord it over anyone. In fact, the Scripture is very clear about that regarding elders in in 1 Peter. Not lording it over them, but proving to be examples to the flock. There's a way to exercise authority, and it's by godly Modeling. And and when you get out of sorts and, and irritable and stubborn, I go talk to God about you. And I ask Him to deal with the issue. And then there's corporate authority, business authority. When you work for somebody, you are under their authority. You're under their corporate structure. You're under their rules. 
You have a responsibility to keep them. You need to be a team player. You need to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. You need to be supportive. And who knows but what it could be that, you know, you're the, you're the person that's always willing to support the boss, support the manager, support the department. Uh, you, you do your best to help out with things. You, you go that extra mile. Someday somebody may say to you, you know what, every time I come up with a new idea here, everybody grumbles but you. Every time I have a new plan, you're the only one that's really on board with it. What's different about you? Ah, always be ready to give an answer to explain the hope that is in you when people notice the difference. Paraphrasing, you can say Jesus because the scripture says work for your employer, servants work for your masters as unto the Lord. As unto the Lord. There is legitimate authority. Now, there's an interesting thing about some of this authority. If you say no to a police officer, the next thing you may find is that he's thrown you to the ground, pulled your hands behind your back, slapped on the handcuffs, and you're being helped into the back of a caged-in vehicle ready to go to jail. He can enforce his authority. But in almost all these other things that I've named, do you know what the key factor is? Loving submission. Loving submission. Being under authority in the context of most relationships requires loving submission. I have chosen to be obedient. In a marriage relationship, and, and I hope you're hearing me guys the right way, you know, I, you can talk to my wife and see what she has to say. I, I think she'll say, I don't lord it over her. I don't try to. I don't want to. I don't even want to. I want her to, 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 to be and to do what God's calling her to do. I want to help her in that. I don't want to, I don't want to frustrate her life. But if she doesn't agree with me, she doesn't have to obey me. I'm not physically abusive. I've never touched my wife in a violent manner in my entire life. I think I've only raised my voice a few enough times that I can count it on my fingers. I'm not a tyrant in my home. My son's listening to me back there. You can ask him if I'm not telling you the truth. And and I'm saying that to you for a reason. If my wife does not want to follow me, all she has to do is say no. And you know what? There's not much I can do about that. It is a loving relationship. And if you're not willing to come under authority, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. Did you know that that's the way Jesus is with the church? How many of you would agree that the church should should obey Jesus Christ in everything? How many of you obey Jesus Christ in everything? Put your hands down. (laughs) How many of you see the problem there? And what does Jesus do? Does he smack you around? Does he throw you up against the wall? Does he put you in handcuffs? Following Jesus is loving followership. 
I have some news for you parents, even with children. One of the most profound statements I ever heard about the parent-child relationship came out of the mouth of my oldest son when he was about six or seven or eight, somewhere along in there. We'd had one of those days. We had been at it all day long. I mean, back and forth. He had been, there had been multiple infractions. We were both worn out. I think I'd had to spank him a couple of times. Is that on tape? Oh, my goodness. I, I, I'm just teasing. Of course, leave it there. I, you know, I got to the end of the day. I was tired. I was, I, he was tired. I mean, it had just been one of those things. But Stephen has always been a very affectionate kind of kid. And um, I'm tucking him into bed, you know, and he's saying, I love you, Dad, and I love you, Stephen. And we're having our nightly prayers. And he looks up at me from his supine position in the bed in the calmest voice, just like I'm talking to you. And he says, Dad, when are you going to learn that you can never make me do anything that I don't want to do? Hello! You know what? It's absolutely right. Now, when you're bigger than they are, there's a certain period of time when you just have the sheer mass of body in your favor. You can control them. When I wanted to hold my smaller boy's hands when we were crossing a street, I could hold that hand and there wasn't anything they could do about it. I just, you know, I didn't hold the fingers. I got the wrist. I've got you. You're not going anywhere without me. But there comes a time when that's not possible. And those are profound words. <clears throat> you can take away privileges. You can make life tough. You can send them to their room and banish them to, uh, you know, house arrest. Did that one time and the parents of, parent of one of Rowena's piano students pulled up to let their child out and found Stephen clinging with his fingers to the second story window dangling on the outside of the house because he had been banished to his room and told to stay there, not to leave. And he decided to go out the window. And then once he got out, it was a little further to the ground than he realized. And there he was. They had to rescue him with the ladder. I thought that was somewhat amusing. But the reality of the fact is there comes a point when they can say, Mom, Dad, stick it in your ear. I'm doing what I want to do. And if, you're, if you've got any intelligence as a parent, you know that's absolutely true. Obedience comes from love, not because of power. In the church, you can do whatever you want to do anytime you want to do it. You don't like what's going on here, you can go somewhere else. You don't like what's going on here, you don't have to go anywhere else. You can just be a lump and not cooperate. You don't like what's going on here, you can make up your own rules. What can we do about it? Nothing. Nothing. Who's going to be the loser? Well, the whole body is going to suffer, but you're going to lose because you're in rebellion. You're in rebellion. And that is a spiritual problem, and God will deal with it. It will put you in a bad position with God. Because submission has to be a loving kind of thing. Even in the corporation, you can be that passive-aggressive sort that 
you never openly defy the rules. You don't do anything to get yourself fired. You just don't go along with the program and you frustrate it in little ways. In all of these realms, submission is a loving, humble response to authority under God because you recognize the authority of God. There is no such thing as a godly life that is not under authority. Did you know that? Every human being is under authority in some realm of your life. I'm under authority. I'm under the authority of the government. I'm under the authority of the, the IRS. I'm under the authority of the police officers. I'm under the authority of the church leadership team and the electoral process. Every person is under authority. And if you're an entrepreneur and you're in business for yourself, the scripture says wisdom is found in the multitude of counselors. If you think you're sovereign, independent, your own boss, you, you, you probably should have a multitude of counselors around you, including maybe a good attorney that has biblical values and a good CPA that has good biblical values and a couple of other wise business people that will sit around breakfast with you occasionally and give you advice. And you need to listen because you aren't smart enough to figure it all out. Every person is under authority. And there's no such thing as a godly life that isn't. So, before we can talk about what do you do when the Bible's in conflict with legitimate authority, you have to settle the fundamental issue. That rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, and humble submission to authority is the plan of God. And we must be sure that we have that attitude before we move to the next step. Now, having said that, when Peter and John were brought before the magistrates, <clears throat> they were told, don't ever preach the gospel again. Don't ever preach this message again. What did they say? We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God. They didn't pull out their swords and say, I'm going to whack your ears off and we're going to overthrow this town if you don't let us do what we want to do. They said, we must obey God rather than men. You can arrest us, you can incarcerate us, you can kill us, but we have to preach the gospel. We have no choice. It's a divine mandate. We have to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. All authority comes from God. He is therefore the supreme authority, and all other authorities are ultimately under His dominion, whether or not they recognize His rightful leadership. And the principle of Scripture is, we must always obey God rather than men. So when you have to say, I can't do what you're asking me to do, recognize that when you do that on a biblical foundation of truth, that you are not in rebellion, you are in submission to a higher authority. A lot of it has to do with the attitude of your heart, because it may look like rebellion, but it is submission to a higher authority. I have to obey God. I don't care who you are. I have to obey God. Jesus declared that following him could be potentially, could potentially cause conflict in marriage between parents and children in the extended family and that such conflict was to be expected. He's using hyperbole here, of course, a big exaggeration of the point, but he says, if anyone comes to me, Luke 14, 26, and does not hate 
his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, oh, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus Christ means he is number one. I have to put him first in everything. Nothing takes supremacy over him. He is the ultimate authority of my life. Everything comes under his rule. And sometimes that will bring us into conflict in the marriage relationship. It will bring conflict with parents and children. It will bring conflict with other situations. Most frequently, the persecution and tribulation that believers in the church endure is at the hands of otherwise legitimate authorities who are threatened by the message of the gospel and the pure lives of the followers of Jesus Christ. It's because of the gospel truth, it's because of biblical morality, it's because of biblical truth that we cause the hatred and reaction of the world. Jesus said, don't be surprised when everyone hates you on account of me. They hated me. That shouldn't surprise you. They hated me. They're going to hate you. You're my follower. They're not going to like you either. You know, isn't it interesting that in our country right now, that there's, there's, there's a, a, a trumping of the concept of pluralism, of uh, relative morality, subjective kind of decisions, yada, yada, all that kind of thing. And yet the truth is that if you step onto the stage and say, you know what, I believe in absolutes, nobody wants to have anything to do with you. Your opinion is no longer a legitimate pluralistic viewpoint. All you have to do is say, I believe in absolutes. And they say, we need to get rid of you. Because you're in the way. No matter what I really think, no matter how I really feel, the world is going to hate you because of your convictions of absolute truth in Jesus Christ. And the day may very well come in this country, they keep bantering it about, one of these days it may, that I stand in this pulpit in this church in McHenry, Illinois, and tell you, according to the Scripture and the Word of God, that homosexuality is sin, that abortion is wrong, and I make those kinds of statements, and they may come in and arrest me and take me to jail. I may not have to worry about retirement. It may be at the expense of the state that gives me a cell and a cot and three meals a day because of Jesus. Because I cannot not speak the truth, no matter what the government says. And Jesus says, you're going to come into conflict. Expect it. In every case where there is conflict between the clearly revealed will of God and the commands of other legitimate authorities in our lives, we must obey God and essentially disobey the rule of man. But you understand when you do that with a humble heart and a submissive spirit, with, with all submission to Almighty God, that you are not rebelling, you are submitting to a higher authority. Let me put it in practical terms and we're almost done. We must suffer the consequences without rebellion. There is no biblical basis for active resistance or armed rebellion. I have an interesting question in your study guide. I did that so I could stir up your small groups a little bit. I said, based on today's message, is the American Revolution, was the American Revolution godly? I hope you get enough biblical principles from what I'm telling you to figure that out. You may, you'll probably still disagree. 
and and there's an awful lot to the question. It's not it's not a simple okay. This is rebellion. All rebellion is sin. Therefore, it was wrong. There's a lot going on there. And I ask a corollary to it. When is it right to defend yourself or your family or or loved ones or whatever with with force with violence? And that's another sermon. I'm not talking about that today. So you, I'm not going to answer it for you either. But you. You can go apply these principles and figure some of this out. Legitimate authority. There's no biblical basis for active resistance. In every case of godly disobedience, the followers of God accepted passively the judgment and consequences of human authority. Look at Nehemiah under the king. Look at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in, uh, in Babylon. Look at some of their actions. And we say, oh, see what happens when you, when you defy authority with godliness and everybody bowed to the king and these three uh, guys stood up, you know, and they're left standing and, and they didn't even smell of smoke when they cast them into the furnace. And look how all that turns out. Yeah, look at Stephen who would not stop preaching the truth and was killed. Sometimes the resistance costs you your life. Read their stories. Obedience to Christ may cause the loss of a marriage, the loss of a family, the loss of employment, the loss of freedom, or the loss of life. In all circumstances, we're to suffer gladly for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Let me put this in very practical terms for you. The scripture says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but all the more so as you see the day approaching. Your husband says, I don't want you going to church. You should not go to church. You shouldn't go to Bible study. I don't want you going to that stuff. Yeah, I, I, I don't like that. What is your reaction to be? I love you. I'm praying for you. I have to go. I'm sorry for whatever pain that causes you but I have to go. I don't want you reading that Bible in this house. I don't even want a Bible in this house. I Get rid of that Bible. If the Bible goes, I go. I'm sorry. I love you. I'm praying for you. But if that's your attitude, then the Bible and I go together. That's not wrong. The scripture says, if your unbelieving spouse will not live with you, let them go. You follow Jesus Christ with all your heart. Let them go. It's pretty simple. It's pretty basic. There comes a point sometimes in the lives of children when they have to obey God rather than their parents. I can tell you what, my mom was not happy the day I told her that I was not going to be a surgeon, but God had called me to preach. She was not happy. She was a Christian. I was in a Christian home. But she saw the prestige and, and, and the, the money and the lifestyle and the security and all that going down the tubes, and I'm going to do what? And, and you know, in our household, we grew up, well, I won't go into all that, but <clears throat> concept was preachers were kind of lazy. They only worked one day a week anyway. And, you know, what, what did they do, you know? Sometimes you have to make tough choices. Sometimes you have to follow God rather than parents. 
Now, if you're four years old, that's probably, you're not ready for that. But you can never do anything illegal, unethical, or immoral at the command of an authority. I don't care who they are. Spouse, parent, boss. Somebody at work says, you know what, I need you to doctor the books here a little bit. Uh, we need to kind of cover this up in this other area and kind of make this look like it goes goes so that the, so that this won't get picked up in the IRS. And, and you have to say to them, I'm sorry. I can't do that. I cannot be dishonest. I have to obey God. The principle remains the same. There are always times, there are times in the military when a soldier must rightfully disobey the wrongful command of a superior. I'm sorry, I cannot do that. I will not do that. There are times when we have to obey God and at times it will cost us. But God said, have no other gods before me. And when he made that statement... That includes your marriage, your family, your corporation, your country. Have no other gods before me. I am number one, undisputed, uncontested. Obey me. And let the chips fall where they may. When you do that, you must be absolutely sure that you have a right spirit that your heart is right before God, and if it doesn't cause you a certain amount of grief to go against those in your life whom you love and respect, then you need to recheck your attitude. But the bottom line is, when the Bible is in conflict with legitimate authority, the Bible still wins. The Bible over culture. The Bible over science. The Bible over authority. The Bible is the authority. We must obey God rather than men. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to apply these principles that we must always be sure that our heart and spirit and attitude are right. Teach us how to make a godly appeal. Teach us how to exercise the privileges we have, for example, of citizens and influencing legislation. Lord, teach us how to live in an understanding way with all the people around us, but deliver us from an independent spirit that is stubborn and rebellious, while at the same time making us women and men of courage who stand on the convictions of the truth of Scripture and will not bend because you are God Almighty in the heavens and we bow first to you. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.